Well, we are covering, I think, a, a section of Ephesians 4 that I wanted to pay special attention to. I, I mentioned it last week that um, in that section of things that unite us as Christians, you had that list, um, God being the one God and the Father of all, I, I did not want to shortchange that. And especially since on these first Sundays of the month, we have some of the younger folks in here. I thought it would be a good opportunity just to talk about God, some very basic and fundamental truths about God, and yet ones that um, so often we can take for granted. And so uh, I'll read the, the passage. You'll have it memorized, I hope, <laughs> by the end of the sermon. But in Ephesians 4, verse 6, Paul reminds us that our unity is also in one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. By way of reminder, we've already talked about the work of the Spirit and the work of the Son, and now we come finally to the work of the Father, God the Father. Now, we're going to explore that. You, you can't talk about God the Father without talking about the Trinity. So this is going to be a little bit, let's say, theology-heavy. And if you are not... Um, if you're, if you're not able to navigate a lot of uh, passages quickly, um, d uh, you can get the scripture references from me later, but we're going to be doing a little bit of globe trotting all over your Bibles to uh, make a few points here. And I'll say them, and you can write them down in your notes as well. But we're going to be talking about God. The one thing that unifies everything, of course, is God because he's the one. He's the one who made everything. And, and, of course, by making a distinction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, uh, we're talking about the Trinity. And if you remember how casually Paul, in not just this epistle, but I was realizing when you look through the whole New Testament, all the apostles just sort of casually bring up the Trinity uh, as, as a matter of fact, never arguing about it, never uh, trying to make... Um, a big philosophical deal about it, but just talking about it casually. And what that says is not so much that the concept is easy to wrap your mind around, but rather the apostles, and I think us as Christians, need to understand that the Trinity is something that matters for our life. I mean, the reason they talk about it so casually is because it's something that affected their daily life. It's something that mattered to them, that God is three in one. They just, they just that was true and, and affected their lives, and so it came out, even in just their speech. And I think that's sort of where you want to be. Maybe you don't exactly understand, and by the end of the sermon, you will. No, that's not, you won't. Um, but <laughs> maybe you can't unravel all of the mysteries of how God is three in one, and yet I, I hope that at least after today's sermon, a you'll a little bit understand how your life is affected by that and how it is important to you as a Christian. So I, I just thought this, was, this is a good opportunity to talk about God and just spend a whole sermon on it. And we begin with this idea that there's one God. The fancy term for that is monotheism. Mono meaning, meaning one, theism meaning God. The belief that there is only one God. Now, if you grew up in the Western world, that might seem like a no-brainer. Like that, yeah, of course, that's a, that's a 
you know, that's how it is, isn't it? But it's quite unusual, quite unusual for religions at the time of Jesus, for religions before the time of Jesus, for religions even now. Monotheism is a very unique phenomenon. And for a moment, if you set aside the religions and the cults that claim an association with the Bible, so different denominations of Christianity, different cults of Christianity that have ties to the Bible, um, Islam is technically an Abrahamic religion, so they claim to be a, an alternate version of the history of the Old Testament, but that still has roots here. If you exclude all of those religions that have something to do with this Bible and therefore monotheism, there are only a handful of major religions that claim to be monotheistic. In fact, the, there's not very many big ones that do. Um, I had some two, two that are big that I thought fell into this category, um, but don't, is Baha'i and Rastafarianism. So Baha'i, um, actually the, the, the founder of it or the, the big figure, and it had a Muslim background. So Baha'i still has some ties to Islam, therefore has ties to uh, Abraham and the Bible. And then Rastafarianism, which is, is the one with everyone has dreads, okay? They're, um, they're a cult of Christianity. So those two, you set them aside. You basically have two other religions. One is less than 200,000 adherents uh, that are, roughly speaking, monotheistic, believe one God. Zoroastrianism, and they do believe in a single transcendent God who made everything, but there's... There's an argument that could be made that they are, in fact, polytheistic, meaning believe in many gods, because while they do have one big main creator god, there's also, like, lesser gods. And whether they truly follow the definition of monotheism or polytheism, it's a little bit debatable. Now, Zoroastrianism is interesting only because that would have been the religion of the Persian Empire at the time of Daniel. And so kings like Darius and so on, they would have been Zoroastrians. And so there's a little bit of a biblical tie there and just in terms of the history. So um, you can look that up. But essentially, once um, Islam became uh, the dominant religion of the area, uh, Zoroastrianism, it is six or 700 AD, um, they fell to the wayside. And uh, there's less than 200,000 adherents of that. So that's one major, used to be really big religion uh, that was monotheistic. And then you have... Sikhism, and Sikhism is uh, mainly kind of in the um, like India, Pakistan sort of region. Uh, there's possible Hindu origins there, and if you remember Hinduism, they have a caste system. There's many gods. There's different gods that you worship in each caste, and so you have the higher strata caste and the lowest ones, which are the untouchables. If you remember, uh, Mother Teresa famously ministered to those lowest caste members of Hinduism. And Sikhism possibly um, turned to the founders of it, these gurus, possibly turned to monotheism because they were pushing against this caste system. So how do you push against this caste system? You say that there's only one God, and that's the basis for our equality. It's not necessarily a bad idea. Um, in that sense, and even with Zoroastrianism and Sikhism, you might look at their view of God being one and see some things that are good there about what they say about a transcendent God who is eternal and made everything and is everywhere. But even then, it's, 
you know, it's very, very unusual in the history of humanity to have a monotheistic religion. Again, on this list, um, Sikhism is maybe the only one that kind of comes close to that, and it's arguable, again, that uh, it might have been a pushback as a response to Hinduism and not just its own kind of a fundamental belief. This is unlike the religions that come from the Bible. Now, I don't think that all the you know, cults and denominations and religions that, that claim the Bible as their religious text are all equally valid. Um, but the Bible is very, very, very clear that there is one God. And this does stand out in terms of history. It's, it's almost the thing that, that stood out to many of the cultures of the ancient Near East about Jews, and then later about Christians, is that they only believed in one God, and you look like you were the odd man out, because everyone else had this pantheon of gods, so many, many, many gods that they worshipped. There's a whole other question I was thinking, I could go on a rabbit trail. Why is polytheism, having many gods, seems so appealing to people? Um, that's a question you might ask. It'd be a good one to talk about over koinonia. Why is it so appealing to have so many different gods? Why is it appealing to have your own personal god? You think about that. So, but we won't go there. <laughs> we won't go there. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's one of the most fundamental passages of the Old Testament. Uh, one of the founding, let's say, uh, declarations of the Israelite people. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, again, in the Old Testament, when you see capital L-O-R-D like that, it's not a title. It's actually God's name, the name that he wants to be known by. Um, we'll get actually to the origin of that in just a second. But here you have a very clear statement about God or Yahweh being one. But what does that mean? There are three ways the rabbis say you could interpret this, right? That Yahweh is the only God that you should worship. So there are many gods, but Yahweh is the only one that you need to care about, is the only one you need to serve. Out of all of them, he needs to be singular in your heart. So there's still kind of maybe an admission that there are other gods. This could also mean, of course, that Yahweh is the only God, that there is only one God. Our, our God is one. Is, he stands alone, in other words. There are no other gods around him. The third way to interpret it is that Yahweh is one in his essence, meaning that he is unified and whole. He is one. He cannot be separated into different parts. He is not um, in other things, and so kind of uh, in many, many parts spread out because he's in you, he's in me, but that Yahweh is one in, in, in complete wholeness as a being. So it could be that kind of oneness, right? So which is it? You have three sort of different ways you can interpret this. Some, one of them is not even necessarily, or two of them, 
necessarily monotheistic. Because you could say, you know, Yahweh is this one whole God, unified, but all the other gods are all disparate in, in pieces. So might not necessarily be an argument just from that passage that Yahweh is the only God worthy of all your worship who is a distinct, complete, whole being. Well, don't worry, there's a whole Bible. <laughs> and I'm just going to draw a few passages to your attention. But the Bible is proclaiming that God is all three of those things. The only one that you should worship, the only God that actually exists, and that he himself is complete in his being distinct from us and whole. Exodus 20, verse 3. You already know this one. Exodus 20, verse 3 says what? You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you should only worship him. So it's very clear that that idea of the Lord God, Lord, is one, meaning that he is singular in your heart, the only one that warrants all of your attention and devotion. Yes, it's in the Ten Commandments, the first one. Isaiah 44, 6. If you want to turn there or just write it down, Isaiah 44, 6, the prophet tells us, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And you can find many passages where even though the Bible talks about gods with a little g, it's not saying that there are actually those gods, but of course people believe that there are those gods. But those gods don't speak, they don't talk, they don't interact. We read in that passage earlier in Deuteronomy 4 that God is, there's no God who's done what he has done because those gods don't exist. You can find many passages, but yes, it's true that there is only one God, unique, uh, stands alone. There are no other lesser gods, lesser, you know, um, demigods and things like that. No, there is only God. Everything else, Baal and Asherah and all those things, they aren't really gods. They don't actually exist. And then lastly, Exodus 3, 13 through 15. This is a familiar passage. This is when Moses encounters Yahweh in the burning bush. And you have a, a, a discussion that happens back and forth, Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Exodus 3, 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, not to get too much into uh, the, the weeds of that passage, actually Aaron Valdezan's working on like a whole uh, <laughs> doctoral thesis on that. So once he's done, you can read that for all the details. Um, but essentially, there is a... A, a, a word play here, but God is saying, like, I am the self-existing, eternal, self-contained, dependent on no other being God. I mean, it's, it's in sort of the name of, of Yahweh, this idea of, like, I am. It's really just saying God is holy, complete, contained unto himself, and everything is sort of contained in him. So, 
Going back to Deuteronomy 6, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. What does that mean? It means he's the only one to worship. He's the only God that actually exists, which is why he's the only one to worship. And he is one and whole and united in himself. So I'm not, I can't tell you for sure that when God told Moses to declare this to the people, that he necessarily meant, you know, three distinct categories, you know, just like that. But those are true statements about the, the unity of God, the oneness of God, the singleness, the singularity of God. And the Jews were unique in this sense for having a God like that in the setting of all these other pagan nations who had many gods that you were trying to please. And if you needed you know, uh, a good harvest, you pray to this God. If you needed vengeance on your, your, your enemies, you, you went to this God and all those things where in the Bible, there is only one God to whom you must hold account. So that makes a difference for us. I mean, it is not when we say one God, uh, we are saying something about the very nature of reality in our existence. That, that this is non-negotiable, that I cannot, you cannot say appeal to your God, right? And I am appealing to mine, and our gods are fighting each other, you know, and, and that's what a lot of, you know, wars uh, would be the pretense. I mean, there's always just about, you know, more money, more power, more territory. But what would you say as a king? Well, this is a fight between my God and your God, and then they would fight. And whichever one won had the stronger God, Right? Well, that, that, that might sound silly. We don't do that sort of thing. But we do kind of do that because we make little idols in our heart, little values that we hold to in our heart, and then we pit them against other people. Well, we think this is important. You think that's important. And so we, we fight with our, uh, with our various idols in our heart. And you see that all over the world and all over social media. It's just all the fighting is people have their little idol, right? And they're going out and attacking other people's idols, and they get you know, all angry and upset. We still do it today. But if there's one God, what does that mean? I know, it's, I know our tendency is to be like, well, well, God is on, you know, my side, so I'm right. So I'm out there demolishing all the other gods with my God. Well, as we've said before, and we said it a lot in, in Joshua, it's not so much that God is on my side, therefore I should win this argument or this battle, but to ask everybody, Whose side are you on? I'm not, God's not on my side. I'm trying to be on God's side, and you should too. It's not so much a battle. It's a recruitment. I want you all to also be on God's side. He's not, he is a, opposed to you in a sense, but he's also recruiting. You can be on his side. So who wants to oppose God? It's not so much about me and my God fighting you and your God. But God is, again, Ephesians 2 and 3, calling people to himself. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. It matters that there is just one God. Next, Ephesians 4 talks about God being the Father. God the, the Father overall. And again, Paul just casually kind of just assuming the Trinity and is thinking about God without ever explaining all the intricacies and the, the paradoxes of believing a three-in-one God. Now, I've defined it this way a few times. I'll say it, um, I'll say it again just to remind us. But the Trinity is sort of like, or saying there's one God is sort of like saying that there's only one single absolute definition of 
God. So you think of all the characteristics that make up who God is, his, his righteousness, his, his holiness, his love, his mercy. You make up that list. Well, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all those things. There's only one definition of God, and yet there are three persons of it. Now, that's just like all of us here meet the definition of human, but we are all different people, yet we all meet one definition of humankind. So there's only one definition of God, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all meet that definition. Now, again, I, I'm not trying to tease out all of the, you know, the, the philosophical, like if, if your brain is as big as God's, you can figure this out. But um, mine is not. Uh, if yours is closer than mine, maybe you can help me out with that. But I have a feeling it's, it's not intended necessarily to be something um, untangled as it is something to believe and trust. Now, just to be clear, in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, because all those passages were all from the Old Testament, the New Testament does affirm that God is one um, and that there's one essence of God, again, very casually, but one, one passage that kind of tied it all together uh, or ties a number of these ideas together is 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 through 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Yeah, there are no actual such thing as other gods. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, whom, uh, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So there you have an example of Paul just sort of casually equating God the Father and God the Son as one in their attributes, and yet obviously speaking about them as if they are distinct and having no problem saying, Jesus is God the Father, or I'm sorry, Jesus is God, <laughs> the Father is God, but we have no other gods but one. And see how he just does it. He doesn't try to unravel that. It doesn't say, now I know that seems like a, you know, one plus one equals one kind of situation. And, but let me tell you, he doesn't do all that. He just, that's it. I mean, you have to really appreciate that he kind of is so casual about the Trinity. You know, there's one God. You know, God the Father, there's one God. God the Father, God the Son. Of course, he affirms God the Spirit as well. Um, I think it's helpful to think of it like this. So I'm going to give you two ways that uh, Trinitarian theology intersects with us and our experience. Okay, so two ways to view the Trinity uh, in a way that intersects with, with us and our experience, right? The first way is to understand that in the one God, there are three persons who have three roles, and the plan of history and salvation, okay? So there's one God and three persons that have three roles in the plan of history and salvation. What does the Father do? Remember in the catechism, he chooses, he plans, he sends Jesus. He is sort of the architect. He is the one that defines what humanity and creation is is about. Look at Galatians 
chapter 4. Actually, go to Acts first. Acts 2, 23. Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is Peter talking on the day at Pentecost, and he says that Jesus was delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God the Father. That this was something that was written in the books. And yet he's also bringing an accusation against them. So has no, again, just you can appreciate the, the writers of the Bible, the prophets and the saints of old. They just had no problem saying God planned, ordained everything. But you screwed up. You know, this is part of God's plan, but you have responsibility. Peter is definitely trying to point the finger at them. This was according to a definite plan and foreknowledge, but you crucified and killed him. So it has no problem just affirming divine sovereignty over everything, but also your responsibility. It doesn't try to, you know, and talk about the philosophy or middle knowledge or any of this stuff. Just there you go. It just assumes it, just like the Trinity. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. is a one book before Ephesians. Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 5. <clears throat> Paul says, is this the right passage? Yes, okay. But when the fullness of time had come, God, the Father, sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So there, again, the Trinity, right? God the Father had a plan. And he sends the son, he sends the spirit. That's his role as the father. Again, very casual. These are all God. This is all you know, one thing in, in, through God, there's a casual kind of acceptance of the Trinity, but it has a very significant importance in our lives because this is how we get saved. This is why we got saved. It's part of God's plan. He did it through the Son. He did it through the Spirit. So the Father, he, he chooses, he plans, he sends. What does the Son do? Well, the Son is the one who actually enacts and obeys that plan. He's the one that um, gets it in motion, the plan of salvation. Look at John chapter 6, <clears throat> 37 through 38. John chapter 6, verse 37. I can tell your fingers are getting tired. There's less paper rustling. <laughs> I know. Hang in there. Just write them down. It's okay. <laughs> John 6, 37. All that the Father, this is Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus, he's a part of the plan, but in a way he's saying it's not my plan, it's the Father's plan. My role is to do it, to submit to it. You have the same idea in Philippians chapter 2. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's the book right after Ephesians, if you have that bookmarked. Have this mind among yourselves, Philippians 2, 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, just casually mentioning, by the way, Jesus is equal with God. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God, the Father, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we have the Son being the one who, who lives out, who, who does the action of the dying and the, and the rising again for sinners. And for that, the Father has a plan also to exalt him. But the Son is the one sort of doing it, right? The, 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 the person of the Godhead that is walking out and living it out this plan of salvation. Thirdly, and this one I go a lot into, the Spirit empowers and indwells. Um, The Spirit came upon the prophets to reveal God through the Word. So one of the things that the Spirit does as part of the history of salvation is that He would come upon people to prophesy and to tell people what the mind of God is, to reveal God, to reveal his plan of salvation that people might put their trust in it. So you have passages, won't go there for sake of time, but 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God, breathed out by God. Uh, 2 Peter verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 20 through 21, uh, that men were born by the Spirit, born along um, by the Spirit, I mean carried by the Holy Spirit, to write revelation, scripture. So that's one thing that the Spirit does in the plan of salvation is it comes upon, it empowers people to do something. Uh, The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus' ministry. Many passages about that, but iconic. Matthew 3.15, when Jesus begins his ministry, he gets baptized, and then what comes upon him? The Holy Spirit in the form of looking like a dove. So you have that picture, if you've ever seen, you know, paintings of it, of Jesus coming out of the water and this, this, uh, the, the Father saying, you know, this is my beloved Son, and the Spirit coming down. Again, Trinity, just right there, almost casual. And the Son receiving the Spirit to do ministry. Everything he did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And of course, then, as Christians, we are born again and live holy lives by the Holy Spirit's empowerment and indwelling. John 3, 6, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Romans 8, 1 through 11, and this one, um, boy, it's, we've been memorizing, so you guys should all remember these passages. Uh, but uh, you have this idea that God sent his son, his son does the work of salvation, it sends into the heaven, and then God sends his spirit to dwell in us so that we can also be like Christ. You, however, verse 9, we'll just do that verse, Romans 8 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So casual. Do you see the Trinity there? Just the casual talking about? The Spirit of God is the same as the Spirit of Christ. So what does that do? It equates the Father and Christ. But it also says that the Spirit is... Uh, and in fact, a spirit of God and Christ, it's also God. It's casual. 
you know, Trinity. You see, you, when you start to think or look at the New Testament with that lens, you see it everywhere. You can just assume it. Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons, children of God. And so the Spirit in the plan of history and salvation, it makes us born again, and then it indwells in us so that we can be empowered to live godly, holy lives. Because God himself is in us so that we can be like him. So you have three different roles in the plan and history of salvation where you need a planner and a sender. You need the one who's going to uh, enact it and do it and live it out. And then you need God in us to empower us to live out our salvation with or work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So there's three roles that the three persons and the one Godhead play in salvation. That, you know, it matters to you. You need the Trinity for salvation. The second way the Trinity intersects with our lives in a, in a meaningful way and maybe helpful to understand is three relational dynamics. So there's three roles in the plan of history and salvation. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's also three relational dynamics that the Trinity brings us. Now, this is unique. You know, this is, again, monotheism is already unique, but the Trinity is even more and more unique to, to biblical Christianity. You have three relational dynamics, God in us, God with us, and God over us. God the Spirit is God in us. We just read it there that in Romans 8 that we live according to the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us to live according to holiness and God's righteous standard. We were made in his image. So that's what we were made to do is be like him. But you can't do it without God dwelling, energizing, empowering you. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells in us. That's a relational thing. God is the God in us. God is also the God with us. Literally, Emmanuel is Hebrew for God with us. And you see that referenced in the, the Christmas story in Matthew 1.23, that his name shall be called Emmanuel. And that's a reference to a prophecy in Isaiah 7.14, that there was this idea that God is going to be among us. He's going to be like us, near to us. He sympathizes with us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, for Jesus to play out his role of salvation, he needed to be as one of us, to be a, a, a sacrifice for our sins. He needed to be perfect humanity, unlike 
us so that when his blood was shed, it was the, the shed blood of a perfect man, a perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, very similar. Since then we have a high, great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's relational. God the Son knows our weakness and frailty. He's not just a God distant and far away. He's not just a, a God like the Roman and Greek gods who are capricious and, and just as angry and petty and jealous as we are. But we have a, 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 a God that is so much, has, has experienced what we have experienced, but done it perfectly without responding in a sinful way. And he still wants to be near you and be your friend. We talked about it a little bit yesterday in the men's breakfast as we go into that book, uh, Gentle and Lowly. But just the idea that, I mean, have you never ever thought of someone and said, they are below me. And don't lie. Like, there's people you've met and seen and say, I don't want to interact with them. You know, that's, that'd be beneath me, right? They're, you know, they're, you know, whatever it is, the way they look, the way they smell, you know, the things they believe, the things they do, and you just think, that's, that's beneath me. I, I, I don't want to stoop down to that. But you know what Jesus did? And, and it's worse the, the, the more, let's say, um, the more highly you think of yourself, right? The, the more that gap is in feeling. Well, here's Jesus, who is God, equal with God. He should deserve the highest station and place. And yet Jesus says, my heart is that I'm gentle and lowly, that he's willing to associate with sinners like us. That he doesn't think, oh, this is beneath me. You guys are beneath me. I'm, I can do way better than this group of people. I mean, I can't believe I have to deal with, you know, Yuri and, and all the things he's doing. It just, this is beneath him. We are beneath him. We, we shouldn't, he should not ever want to be among people such as us, a bunch of hypocrites, liars, and self-righteous. But Jesus, he exactly had this, that's who he is in his person, as the son, is he's the God that comes in among us and holds us, shows compassion, hugs us and embraces us, though we are unclean. That is the relationship of the son to us. God is also the father. And like a father, he leads, directs, guides, purposes, promises. Says there's a home and an inheritance waiting for us. That's the role of a father that can say, you have an inheritance waiting for, for you, my son, my daughter. We've talked about that in Ephesians already. We relate to him then as a relational thing, as our father with total trust and faith. Remember, uh, Galatians 4, 6, we, we already read it, but that he is, this gives us the spirit uh, as sons so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. It's a statement of trust, as a statement of dearness, of dependence upon him and saying, I'm like a child. Remember Mark 10, 13 through 16, the, the, the parents are bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples start rebuking them. 
right? You know, the master doesn't have time for children. And Jesus says, don't hinder the children from coming. For, for such is the kingdom of heaven. You must be like a child. You must see God as your father. You must cling to him in that kind of desperate way. God in us. God with us. God over us and above us. That's why there's a trinity. Is, is we, we need all of those things. I mean, you could, and there's a lot of different other, other ways to see kind of the, the practical intersection of, of the trinity with us. That's just two of them. Their roles in history and salvation, redemptive history and salvation, and their, their roles in, in our relationship to God. And I, I should note real fast that I'm purposely giving distinct roles that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit have from each other, but I just want to emphasize that they all share the attributes of God equally. Remember, the thing that unites them together is that they all follow, they all possess that one definition of God. So his love, his mercy, his righteousness, his holiness. And one example of their unity as God, because we just talked about their distinctions in the Godhead, think of it this way. The Spirit, who is love, empowers us to love others by dwelling in us and causing us to love. The Son, who is love, you know, they're all love, right? The Son, who is love, demonstrated God's love by actually coming to the earth, dying on the cross for our sins, rising again. He is our example that it is possible to love people because God, as a man, did it, walked among us, showed us his love, and now we can see an example and know how to love as well. The Father, who is love, Planned the whole thing from before time existed. Somehow, some way, like a like a father who 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 is looks at a, their their child and wants the best and wants to enact the best for that child, has purpose it all, and he promises, "I can't keep this promise for my kids. Everything is going to work out. Daddy will take care of it. I can't do that, but our God, the Father, can." And in his love, he says, all things will work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So they share love, right? That attribute of love. God is love. And you can do this mercy, justice, whatever. But in that love that they are as being God, there's different ways that that is intersecting with us. So they're, um, so they're all united in their attributes divine attributes, and yet what they do, how they relate to us, how that works out in the plan of salvation, that is what's different. Three in one. And if that can't, you know, wrap your mind totally around that, it's okay. I can't either. But this helps a little bit. And maybe it helps make a little bit of sense on why the, the writers of the Bible can just take it so casually. Um, is because for them, it's something that they, they understand and know almost by experience. Now, there are three prepositions after this one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all, right? So three prepositions are over, through, in. The question is, what does all mean? Over all, through all, in all. Now, I won't get into all the grammatical issues, but all means all of us, all believers, Remember that the theme here is unity. Paul is making this big push uh, to unify Christians together, Jews and Gentiles, people from all over. 
So while, in a sense, it's true that God is over everything and through everything and you're working his divine purpose and all that's happening and he's got, he's in everything in the sense that like there's, there's nothing that is, a, nothing in existence that's not part of God's uh, willing and purposing that thing to be existing. So it's, you can see it as a very generic statement about God being overall, through all, in all. Um, but we're almost certainly talking about God being over, through, and in believers. That this is, again, a unifying statement for Christians and for his church. So we're talking about God the Father being sovereign over us, working through us in our lives, and being in us, in our, in our hearts. God uh, is over us all, meaning he is sovereign. This is his world. We are his people. And while it's nice to imagine that we're the captain of our own destiny and that the only person that matters is me, how does it unite us that God is over all of us? Well, that's the last thing that you or I need is for me to get what I want all the time. If you only existed that, you know, Yuri's will be done, this, the world would be a worse place, let alone the planet. Now, one of the worst passages or statements in the Bible is everyone did was right in their own eyes in the book of Judges. Um, and that's the thing is if God is not the one who's overall, then who is in charge? It's, it's you. It's me. Well, there, I can't imagine a worse fate. <laughs> Talked about this yesterday um, as well, that um, if, if it's just about me getting what I want, the horrors that would be unleashed would be unfathomable. It's not about what I want. It's not about what you want. The thing that unites us is that it's about him. He's God. He should get all the glory. This is his story. It's not mine. I, I get to be a part of it, but this is God's story. So it unites us if we can all admit or say or be, come to that point where we say, you know what? There are things that I want. There are things that I like, but you know, God is over all of us. I want to please him. And you, if you say, me too. I mean, I got preferences. I got things I'd like to do or rather do or have things done this way, but you know, I think... Yeah, God is the one that has to be pleased. That, that's something we can unite around. Otherwise, there's a hundred preferences in this room. But if God is the one who's over us all, now we have but one person to please. That always unifies. God works through us all. Again, God gives us a chance to participate in what he's doing. He is transforming us into his likeness. We are his children after all. So as we grow as Christians, we become more like him, and in the process, God uses us. We are his instruments. We are his hands and feet to work out his divine plan, just like the son was sent by God to do his will and was empowered by the Spirit to do it. So too, we have been planned, purposed by God, sent into this world at this time, 2023, you know, Southern California, February, to be empowered by the Spirit and do His will, do what He wants. He's using us to do that, just like He did through Jesus. God is through us all, and if, if we can see that, that unifies us, because then we look at each other and we say, you know, God is working in your life. He's trying, he's trying to, to do something here, to bring all of us together to accomplish a mutual goal and purpose. 
That unifies us. The same spirit working in you is working in me. And maybe um, I'm a little bit further along or, or you are. Well, God is putting us together so that our differences, that our strengths and weaknesses might complement each other and that we can all work together. And God can work through all of us for his gospel purpose. God is also in us. And this is fundamentally a statement about identity. Now, we live at a time when I think we need to start saying more that the fundamental question is identity. We can get into all sorts of arguments these days over which sins are destroying our culture the most. And there's a lot of sins that are destroying our culture. But ultimately, it does come down to this basic question. Who are you? Who gets to define who you are? What is your identity? Do you get to define yourself? And that's the major goal of like, like secular psychology is like is self-actualization, is you knowing who you are or choosing that or something along those lines. And yet the Bible tells you who you are. You are children of God made in his image. That defines you. That should define you. That should be your identity. It's not so much about, you know, you know you're wrapped up in this sin or, or that sin or, or whatever it is. It's that your identity must be in God because God is in you. As a Christian, God is in you. And so you say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so I, I'm here and, and God has made me, you know, Yuri with whatever weird you know, quirks and, and strengths and weaknesses that I have, but fundamentally I would say my, my identity as, is as a Christian. God made me his child, and whatever he wants me to do, that's what I want to do because he knows what I was made for. He made me. And everyone else, that's what they really need to be confronted with is their identity. If you're not in God, if God is not in you defining your identity, do you really get to define yourself? Does, does a lion get to define itself, or is it a lion, let's say? And what happens when a lion does not want to be a lion, or you know, insert any other kind of identification sort of thing? Like, is it all just a free-for-all, and you just pick and choose who you want to be? Well, the Bible says no. Like, your life is owed to God. He, he made you. You might not like it. Of course, no one asks you to be, be born, but here we are. Well, it would be pushing against reality if I did not accept that, that I'm made for him and to find my identity in him. And that's, I think, really the challenge of our cultures. We can get very fixated on the particular ways that people are defying God and his image, but we, we need to. We need to call those out. We need to call sin out, um, but we need to remind the ultimate issues. The reason we're calling it out is not just because God has a, a list of naughty things, and a list of acceptable things. God has, are you like him or not? Are you made, are you, are you um, are, are, is your identity in him? Or are you trying to carve it out for yourself? And so, God, the Father, unites us all today. And we get an amazing opportunity. It's wonderful that we get to take communion, which is an expression of our unity with each other. And to remember the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all that work in that night when Jesus was betrayed. And so we're going to prepare our hearts for that. But this morning, if, if you aren't a Christian, that is my question to you. What is your identity? Who are you? Why? Where did you come up with that? 
Is it stuff you saw on TV? I mean, I remember as a kid, I wanted to, you know, <laughs> actually as a kid, I wanted to be an oceanographer, you know, he's Jacques Cousteau and, and all that. And like, oh, I, I see someone, I want to be like that. Nowadays, you see, you know, people on social media, I want to be like that. Just imagine wanting to be <laughs> someone you saw on TV that you never even met or knew. When God is there saying, I, I, I created you, I made you. And you're going to go after trying to be like all these, you know, knuckleheads on, on TikTok and stuff? Like, I'm God. You're supposed to be made for me, for something glorious. And how we squander it away. You're not a Christian here. Who are you? Why? God has made you and intended something more glorious for all of those made in his image. But if you deny him, if you pursue your sin, if you try to make your own identity apart from him, that is rebellion and sin and foolishness. You can't. And the consequence for sin is death and eternal punishment in a place far away from God, which is hell, a place that is eternal pain and suffering because you didn't want to go to the God who made you. But there's an opportunity this morning to know Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who willingly laid down his life for sinners like you and me, like rebels like you and me, and made a right a way for us to be right with God by faith and trust in him. You can turn to him today, and the spirit will, will dwell you. God will be God over you, with you, and in you today if you turn to him. If you have any questions about that, I'd love to talk with you about that more if you're not a Christian here today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your never-ending patience and love for your pursuit of sinners, for um, this, uh, this, the, the justice and the righteousness that you possess, but also the gentleness and lowliness and mercy that you, that you give and, and offer to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider what really unites us here as a body of Christ, as a church. May it be these truths, not just you know, clever sayings and you know, interesting takes and all this stuff, but may it be you, God, that truly brings us together. That would be a wonderful thing. So work in our hearts through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.